Welcome to the show. You are now part of Reveal, the revenue intelligence podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people success, deal success, and strategy success. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals, and they share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Sheena, we are taking the podcast on tour. Well, not the podcast, but the podcast hosts are going on tour. Care to elaborate? Yeah, we are pumped. We're actually taking Celebrate, which was our annual event in October in San Francisco. We're going to be taking that show on the road to four cities in February. So if you are in the New York, Boston, Chicago, or Toronto areas in February, mid-Feb, please check out our website and register to attend. Uh, The website is celebrate.gong.io. And there's going to be tons of great sales leaders. So many good leaders. Yeah, like the folks that you hear on Reveal, folks just like that are going to be on panels. We'll have our executives, like our CEO, Amit, giving a keynote, interactive workshops. like tons of. I've got a little keynote going on in there. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) I was saving the best for last. So uh, you don't want to miss it. So again, celebrate.gong.io. Don't miss uh, Celebrate on Tour. So today we uh, have David Katz, who is the VP of Global Sales at Tessian, which is a security company uh, based in London. Uh, we had a great conversation with David, which we just wrapped up. Dude is awesome. He's like has a really soothing way of talking. Yes, and I was really enjoying podcasts. that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but I think like the interesting thing about his career journey is that he is like very much focused on continuous learning and yep. challenging himself. So um, you know, even though he's worked at these tremendous companies like LinkedIn, Dropbox, Intercom, you name it. Um, He's always had that lens of like, am I learning and am I still learning? And if so, I should be, can stay at this place. And like, that's some of the advice that he gives to the listeners. Yeah. Yeah. He's basically saying, you know, if you're on a good journey, you're, you're contributing to your company, you're learning, you're developing, don't be too quick to move on, uh, you know, before your kind of time is up there. Right. Don't fall for a better comp package, uh, better title but really just kind of do some self, uh, you know, self um, review or inflection uh, and kind of see like, hey, like, am I still on a good path here? Should I stay or should I go? Yep. Uh, sometimes being uncomfortable is what needs to happen. That's those mm-hmm. are the moments that you are challenged and in which you learn. Yeah, that's what you're saying. Stay. If you're uncomfortable, you should for the right reasons. <laughs> you should stay put. You should keep keep developing and keep learning. So let's go ahead and dive into that interview. David, thanks so much for joining us, man. I know you didn't have to travel very far, but we appreciate your time all the same. It was a long couple blocks walk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it can sometimes feel long in San Francisco walking those two blocks. Yeah. So <laughs> there, there it can be an eventful two blocks downtown. <laughs> uh, we like to start every episode by understanding how you know these successful revenue leaders start their day. So do you have a go-to morning routine you can share? My routine has changed a lot. Um uh, and I'll say why. Uh, so I have a three-year-old and a four-month-old mm-hmm. at home. Oh, yeah. And my wife um, just went back to work from maternity leave last week. 
And our morning routine has changed dramatically from where it was previously. Um, I used to, I am an early morning riser and I also have to be. So the company I work for, Tessian, um, the San Francisco office is actually a new location for us. Our headquarters is London. So the eight hour time difference means I'm on the phone at like 6 a.m., 6.30 most mornings, sometimes earlier, although I try to avoid it. I don't envy you. (laughs) Um, so yeah, it's, it's work mode pretty quickly. Um, and, and actually I love that. I love just kind of jumping into it now that we have kids, it's finding the balance, um, of how do we kind of get them dressed and ready to go to uh, school and daycare for the day and then get out the door and kind of get in the city on time. So it's a, it's a transition right now. I would say when I can, um, and I'm not on calls, I love to listen to podcasts. So I actually drive into the city, um, one, so I can take calls if I need to, um, but two, so I can listen to podcasts. Nice. And I try not to listen to sales podcasts, <laughs> which is comical considering where, where we are right now. Sure. Um, but I try to just to listen to things I just find like interesting and motivating. Yeah. Um, so a big one that I love listening to is How I Built This. Yes. Oh, yes. Guy Rath. Love Guy. Um, I just find it really inspiring to listen to those folks. Yeah. Um, I, I don't take offense to that, having a sales podcast myself. There are times where it's like, you know, when you do something for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes listening to that thing isn't really what's going to move the needle mm-hmm. for you. So I'm a fan. Yeah. Seems like you have a little entrepreneurial bug in you too then. Uh, increasingly. I, I Like I think... Um, it's different for everyone. The first time I wanted to test that theory was like when I left what was like the safety net and the amazing experience I actually had at LinkedIn and went to Dropbox. Mm-hmm. And then when people think Dropbox, most people know it. A lot of us have used it in mm-hmm. one form or another over the years. But when I joined it, it was like a 300 person company, no sales team, all revenue was consumer. Like we weren't oh, okay. doing anything really B2B. We were just trying to figure out how to do that. Right. And that was my plunge of, well, I want to see if I like this environment mm-hmm. and if I like building. I have mm-hmm. no idea if I can do it, but we'll find out. Yeah. So I have learned since then, subsequently, yes, I do like that. So today you're um, VP of Global Sales at Tessian. Can you tell us a little bit more about what does your role entail? What does your team look like? Yeah, so um, I'm responsible for revenue at Tessian, which means starting with like reporting to our board on just like how we're tracking and our forecast and making sure we're tracking to our plans. But all things revenue, uh, I'm ultimately responsible for. Um, so we currently have teams in London and here in San Francisco, and we've been uh, on a growth tear similar to you guys. And I'm responsible for all the teams that help make revenue a reality and then help us retain our revenue. So thinking about our uh, lead generation teams, our sales development reps, mm-hmm. our account executives, um, and then post-sale thinking of our customer success managers and the teams that make sure our customers get the most from our product. And how large is your guys' um, sales team? So I actually just, I'm preparing for an all hands I have tomorrow to kick off the new year. And um, it's funny, like sometimes you really need to step away and just do the math and, and you lose sight where you get so caught up in your day to day of just how far you come in such a short amount of time. So here's a crazy stat. So our org right now is about 65, 50% of those people have joined in October 1st or later. Oh, wow. Oh, man. <laughs> a lot all of babies. new folks. Yes, a lot of new folks. Um, so it's exciting. It's an exciting time to be with the company. But um, yeah, we've grown very quickly. Imagine you're onboarding. Uh, hopefully you have a sales enablement manager or someone helping with that. But that's, yeah. gonna, that's a good way to stress test your onboarding program. <laughs> very much so, yes. And uh, we do have a head of sales enablement. He's literally onboarding right now in London. <laughs> um, uh, like literally right now. 
So uh, Tessian is the, the world's first human layer security platform. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means and what is your product protecting against? Yeah, so it's really fascinating. So if you backed up like 20 years ago, chief information security officers, that was not a thing. Mm-hmm. But like, as everyone knows who would be listening to this podcast, like with the explosion of content creation and content being shared digitally, that's an amazing tool to like move quickly um, and helps companies kind of really accelerate, collaborate, and just do meaningful work faster. But it presents lots of opportunities for mistakes to happen or for people to gain maliciously access to your your content that can be really sensitive. And so like as this like explosion has happened, how do we secure this data now has become increasingly more and more important. And what's nuts is like the rate of investment. I mean, there are so many amazing security companies out there that secure you know, infrastructure or endpoints. There's great yeah. hardware and software companies. And yet we're spending all this time and focus and energy and resource here. But the rate of data breaches is outpacing the investment we make in the space. Wow, that's very alarming. Yeah, it's and um, and it's going to continue. Like um, and so, like what we've realized is we feel fundamentally we're uh, historically have solved for the wrong problem. Mm-hmm. And it's the fact that no matter how good your security programs are and your protocols are, you're relying on humans to do the right thing 100 percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're not like we make mistakes. Yeah, you of know? course. Um, that's why we're human. And until that time in the future where we no longer are creating and sharing this content and it's just you know done by drones and bots, um, you have to find ways to empower your users to make less mistakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're really solving for. So we've actually brought machine learning algorithms to humans to superpower them and pr- help them prevent making silly mistakes, like sending the wrong email to the wrong customer or vendor, sending the wrong sensitive attachment. Yeah. Like we actually can predict that and intervene and keep them from making that mistake. Versus really? just realizing, like, most security companies actually only can inform you after the fact. Sure. And we react, and now, like, hey, let's lock it down, and then let's solve for making sure this doesn't happen again. We actually can go a step before that and actually prevent it from ever happening in the first place. Mm-hmm. Wow. So I want to talk a little bit about kind of, like, your career path. You know, you say that you credit a lot of senior sales leaders for kind of giving you a shot, giving you a chance when you, frankly, weren't proven, maybe not ready. Yeah. So for the aspiring, you know, sales leaders that are listening, you know, how did you initially establish this, like, circle of mentors who kind of helped prepare you and, and give you that opportunity? I think it's just exemplifying, like, a desire and passion to want to learn and get better. Mm-hmm. My first month working at LinkedIn I joined as an account executive there. It was mm-hmm. my first time working for a software company mm-hmm. in like a traditional sales role. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea like half the terminology people around me were using. Yeah. Um, and I remember like we got our list of accounts for the year and we're supposed to be scrubbing them. I'm like, I don't know what scrubbing means. Like, how <laughs> Am I supposed to physically clean these accounts? How do I actually do this? Where does this list exist? Where, does, yeah, well, where do you actually, how do I do this? Like I just had no idea what was going on. Yeah. But I had the will and desire to learn and get better. And I just went to people around me that I realized were really talented and smart. I just honestly kind of forced myself on them and just Mm -hmm. like, I'm not going away. I'm going to be that annoying person who's tapping you on the shoulder. Like, how do you do this? What about that? And I think at first I was initially for a very short amount of time apprehensive around doing that because I was worried like, oh, they're going to realize like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then I realized no one knows what they're doing. We're all trying to figure this out. We're going to what role you're in. You're trying to figure out what you're doing. Um, And I realized like people actually really wanted 
to work with people who were that invested wanting to learn and get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so even though I didn't have the skill, I think they were willing to give me future opportunities because like I was so passionate about just wanting to figure things out. Now that you're a global sales leader, are you, do you have like a mentorship circle still? And are you maybe kind of paying it forward to like mentoring younger or more junior folks? Yeah, both for sure. Uh, the hard thing is like, if I could just do mentor people all day, I would, but there's just only so many hours you can dedicate it towards nice. it. So it's, it's, it's challenging to find the balance. But yes, I have people who mentor me that I go to very frequently mm-hmm. um, to bounce ideas off them, get their feedback, um, sometimes have them kind of just kind of check me and put me back in place. Never hurts. Uh, yeah, <laughs> very much so. And that list of mentors, I think, changes. I think yeah. as you evolve, the mentors you work with need to evolve as well. Yeah. And that's actually something that I learned when I had a mentor tell me, like, I'm no longer mentoring you. I'm, not, I'm no longer the right person. Yeah. Like, I'm tapping out and it's time for you to kind of move on. Was it was it that that person thought, hey, I've pretty much just gotten you as far as exactly. I can? Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. For our relationship and for the things you needed when we started uh, kind of um, in this relationship, like you're there and it's time for you to get someone else now. That was helpful and then empowered me for when I'm mentoring people to know like right. there's going to be a time and an expectation I need to set with. There'll be a time where like I've helped you to the degree that I really can and maybe I can help you get to the next mentor, but like this relationship won't be as fruitful. And technically, we move so quickly, yeah. right? And yeah. people become managers and directors and VPs faster than anywhere else I've ever seen in any other industry, right? Like you, for example, 10 years from not knowing uh, what scrubbing is <laughs> yeah. to leading a global sales team in 10 yeah, years, sure. right? Like that's not not a lot of time. Like you've clearly learned a lot. My question is, you know, did you have any self-doubt when it's like you get that manager bump for the first time? When you become a director, a VP, you're reporting to the board for the first mm-hmm. time. Did you experience any self-doubt? He's nodding a bit for the folks that can't see. But if so, like, how did you, how did you kind of manage that? All the time. I think um, it happens all the time. And anyone who says it it doesn't, I think they're just not being either honest with themselves or with you. It's, it's tough though. I think um, when you're leading, you need to, there needs to be like a, a, a certain level of kind of confidence that you can project to the team, especially in sales. Like, yes, it's, it's stressful enough. I can't put my own anxieties, fears, and doubts on mm-hmm. the team around me and kind of just pile on, so to speak. But yeah, there's doubt all the time. You know, when things are moving quickly, like you're not always going to have the right answers. And I think what I realized, actually not even that long ago, is I got comfortable knowing that like this is a boat that most people are in. Yeah. And I think it's, it's easy. And I think especially in sales, we're all really good at projecting this image. And we tell these amazing stories of, I figured these things all mm-hmm. out and... You know, there was no real pivot or challenge along the, the triumphant way. stories. Yeah. And it's in uh, and I just think it's it's unfair because it's not real. Um, it's like there's tons of times where you're, you're scratching your head and you don't know what to do next or you're not sure why it's not working the way you planned it to work. And I think the people who are the most successful, are the ones that get very comfortable in that space of that doubt and know that everyone else feels similarly and has been in this position. And then you can't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's just figuring out how do you kind of not let it impact your decision-making process or kind of hold you back. Right. It can't be paralyzing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for some people, it can be. Yeah. So you've worked at some incredible companies, LinkedIn, Dropbox, Intercom, mm-hmm. um, now Tessian. What are some of the checkboxes that you use to evaluate, like when it's time to move on to the next company and then when you're looking at that next company, like what is the right company for you? Yeah. Um, I've had people ask me that and, you know, I have kind of the few things that I looked at, for example, when I joined Gong, but would love to hear like how did you figure out like this is the right company and fit for me? 
So it, it changes. I think as the role you're looking for, what you think you need next. Um, so it, it definitely like evolves and for me has evolved. Like what I was looking for when I went to Dropbox versus what I was looking for when I went to Tessie and more recently has definitely changed. The thing I tell people a lot um, when they're earlier on their careers is, and, and I've learned this just through like life experience, as you have more experience and you get older, fewer things matter. Yeah. <laughs> like truly matter, mm -hmm. um, but the things that matter just matter exponentially more. Um, and so when I was thinking about where I wanted to go next, and so Sheena, to answer the first part of your question, I think there becomes a time, and this is different for everyone, but mm -hmm. I think about um, the cross-section of, um, is there more for me to learn and is there for more for me to add to this team? And when, and I think you have to have a real conversation with yourself mm -hmm. around, am I still learning? If you are, stay where you are. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think people are so quick to think of the next shiny thing. Yeah. If you're learning, improving, and getting better, um, uh, and you should stay in that environment you're in. Yeah. Because you're obviously one that's like fostering and supporting you and helping right. you develop. Stay there. Very true. Um, um, but there's, there is a natural point in time where what you can accomplish in your role or in future roles, like it, your learning curve just starts to slow down. Mm-hmm. And when you start, you can start to feel that. I think everyone can start to feel that. Um, so then thinking like, is there a different role or opportunity for me here at this company that I've started to establish myself at mm -hmm. and have these relationships at for me to continue to evolve and learn? Right. Or is it time for me to think externally? So I, I think it's, it's planning for that. And then when you start to feel that, then it's trying to figure out like, can I succession plan? Who is the next person to kind of come up behind me that will uh, kind of take these things further and they will be inspired because like they will have a whole new level of growing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Kind of feeling mm -hmm. in this role. Yeah. And, and it's something that last decision, finding the next person to replace you, yeah. it shows how invested you are in the work that you've done and the development you could help that team. If you're like, Hey, I don't want to just leave the reins to somebody. Like I want to find who can pick up where I left off and really take it to the next level. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can dig into a few of your different experiences over time. So at Dropbox specifically, you manage the mid-market team. I believe you had 40 AEs that were reporting to you. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Tell us a little bit about your experiences, like specifically managing a mid-market team. What were some of the unique challenges with that sector versus, you know, now you've looked across different segments? Yeah. When I joined Dropbox, we didn't, we didn't have a sales team. So mm -hmm. we were just getting ready to launch our first business product, literally called Dropbox for Business. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was getting ready to ship. Um, and so we were kind of preparing for that. Um, but what the company realized was like, hmm, you know, like, um, we're trying to establish ourselves within the enterprise space. And then we have all of these inbound leads of people who are asking us like, is there a business version of mm -hmm. this? Mm -hmm. That would be cool if there was. And those were like very small companies, but then there was this huge market opportunity in the middle that no one was paying attention to at Dropbox. Um, and so they're like, Hey, let's hire someone to see if they can figure out like, can we do business yeah. in this kind of mid market space? Um, so when I joined, there was literally a team of zero mm. and we had some folks who were insanely bright who had joined in generalist roles and kind of just raised a hand to join the sales team without any kind of previous sales experience. Interesting. You know, we had someone who uh, joined from Goldman Sachs, who was an analyst, yeah, um, yeah. brilliant guy, went to Dartmouth, but had never done sales before, never sure. worked in a tech company. And he raised his hand and said, I'll help figure out this sales thing. Mm. So the team was zero when we started. And then we had a small team in like that first year um, and really just even that first quarter to figure out like, is there an opportunity here? And if there is, can we actually capture it? Or, or what would the product we would need be uh, to actually kind of do business here? 
and like we figured it out pretty quickly and like then started hiring like crazy. I think mm-hmm. there was one period there in that first full year, we hired like 55 people in the first five quarters. So we kind of just threw the gas on the fire and went. And then based off our success there and as we kind of grew, then I kind of took over ownership for um, the enterprise team as well. Yeah. And then I, I saw from LinkedIn, it was the largest uh, P&L team. So I imagine yeah. deals are getting bigger, deals are yeah. getting more complex. You start to know what you're doing now, right? So we can iterate the playbook. What was your kind of like deal execution strategy or philosophy as you were kind of like coaching your team on how to approach those deals? Well, we would maniacally measure our funnel and try to concentrate to figure out without any historical data. That's the no, fun part. No actuals. <laughs> like, okay, let's look at some other companies and how they benchmark. And like, what should our conversion rates be? And then you kind of guess and, and try to try to back into what those look like and then dedicate yourself to having a couple quarters and get some data and see like, are conversion rates better, worse? Let's understand why. What we realized um, kind of early on was we were selling to the wrong audience. Interesting. <clears throat> who were you guys trying to go for and, and who did you end up figuring out was better? We thought we could go to power users of Dropbox. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, based off of the data we had, we knew people that were getting value personally from mm-hmm. Dropbox. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. So many of those people would actually sign up using their work email domain. Okay. Ah. Yeah. And so we're like, huh, like interesting, like, you're sharing and working on like PowerPoints and Excel. Like this isn't just family photos, your story. Right, you're like, right. you're using this to do work. And what we actually thought was like, you're going to be our evangelist. Like yeah. maybe for your team, we can kind of get in. And we land can expand, land, stuff, land an yeah. initial deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that did not work well. Interesting. Um, and we realized, we quickly kind of um, realized like, oh, we're selling to the wrong audience. Mm. And then we kind of picked up and, and did some real soul searching of like, how do we kind of pivot this? And we realized, no, 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 we have to really have to go and sell to IT initially mm-hmm. and not try to circumvent them, so to speak. Sure. Um, I, I've been there it, myself. <laughs> yeah, it didn't help. Like it, it, it um, and rightfully so, like it was frustrating to them that they weren't early on involved in this conversation, yeah. part of the evaluation. Yep. And also we realized like if we wanted to like build the right types of longer term relationships, they had to be part of this early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to start helping them understand with, yes, we get it. You've got G drive and you've got these other things, but you know, here's why you need, or your employees need this in addition to the other tools you have. Mm-hmm. And that was a real inflection point. Once we realized we needed to sell to it, it, it changed everything and we started to accelerate. Was it then a process of retraining the folks that you had on the team to sell to a new audience? Or was it like bringing in new folks who sell to the new audience combination of both? How did you make that shift happen in yeah, reality? Yeah, it was definitely both. Um, we, you know, we realized like, okay, we're selling to a more technical buyer. And so we had to train ourselves to understand like what is important to this persona? What did, what's top of mind? Mm-hmm. What do they care about? And how can we kind of start to build a relationship and trust with them and speak their language, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Part of that was hiring some people so we could do it quickly who'd had experience selling to more technical buyers, sure. but also it was just a complete retraining of the team. Yeah. Yeah. And then we also realized in doing that, that our, our pitch had to change as well. We felt our initial pitch was coming off as a little too like fear based. How so? If you can share. Um, so, you know, we would tell people, you know, essentially we'd be like, gosh, you have all these people using Dropbox and they're using it for work purposes, but they're using the wrong version of it. And you don't really have the insight control over mm-hmm. like who's sharing what and mm-hmm. with who and in what way. And they're not meeting kind of your security. Yeah protocols and that's like not a great way to build a relationship it feels nor with that audience i don't think no they were kind of <laughs> like are you trying to like back us in a corner and be like, right you have this problem yeah. and, and people would call that it like, the drop box problem. <laughs> yeah that you and the, your, your company you created this problem for us like it yeah. 
it just felt um, like a little too heavy handed. Sure. And so we need to start, or we realize we need to actually start telling more of a story of like um, collaboration and how they actually could be empowering people to do work mm-hmm. the way they wanted to if they had the right version yeah. of Dropbox. And we, we started um, focusing less on data actually um, and more on telling stories of success mm-hmm. from other companies similar to them. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. like that was something that we really learned and was like, ah, yeah, we have really have to focus our energies on like learning how to storytell yeah. Yeah. effectively. Well, it's interesting. You started with data to figure out something was wrong, right? Figured out why. And then it's like, okay, the solve isn't more data to these people. It's just a great narrative they can get behind. Data can get your attention and interest, but at the end of the day, like decision-making is emotional and mm-hmm. like telling the right stories, I think we learned was really important. Okay, folks, time for the data breakout. David mentioned that decision-making is emotional, and we have some interesting data from our Gong Labs team to support this. Last year, Gong Zone Chris Orlob published an article titled, ROI in Sales is Dead, Great Salespeople Are Doing This Now Instead. And after analyzing millions of sales conversations, he and the Gong research team found that presenting ROI at any point in your sales process correlates to a 27% drop in close rates. You heard that right. ROI presentations correlate with deals going south. You're probably scratching your head right now, so let's unpack that a bit. Presenting ROI to your customer awakens the wrong part of their brain. To grossly oversimplify some psychology, the human brain has two parts, logical and emotional. Your goal as a seller, or in David's scenario, as a leader, is to push the right button in the emotional brain because that's where decisions happen. When you calculate ROI or simply leverage data to make your case, you stimulate the logical brain, the part responsible for critical analysis. That's why every time you present ROI, your customer rolls their eyes and argues with your assumptions. I mean, hey, whose ROI calculator ever has had a negative return? Am I right? But Chris doesn't say that attempting to prove ROI doesn't work. Always be mindful of correlation versus causation. If you're interested in reading the full article on why ROI fails to work in your sales cycle and what he suggests you use instead, check out the link in the show notes. So David, you were at Intercom during a really interesting time when they were pivoting from being very self-service to needing to be more outbound and how uh, the sales team reached out to clients. Can you tell us about that time? Moving from a purely self-serve business, that transition, like Intercom built this like amazing brand loyalty um, and like released insane content and got insane amount of leads and like did a great job of like helping people convert from trial to customer. Mm -hmm. But as we started to kind of grow and wanted to keep accelerating revenue, like we started to tap out and it like revenue growth wasn't keeping pace with where we wanted to. And you start realizing like, as we move up market, like this kind of um, trial first approach wasn't going to work. Um, But actually like threading the needle on like, how do we help make that transition elegantly where we actually going more out outbound and mm-hmm. actually targeting the people we know we should be doing business mm-hmm. with. Yeah. It's just such a fundamentally different way to market. Yeah. Um, and acquire customers and then make them happy and successful post sale. Yeah. Um, like that was something that, um, is still a work in progress, but like was uh, such an interesting learning experience for us there and getting people, I think comfortable with the upfront investment you need to make around hiring a sales team and uh, a post sale success team. And there's mm-hmm. like, 
this huge lift from the investment you need to make up front to see yeah. the returns. Yep. And it's like a different acquisition model. Mm-hmm. And so I think getting um, your company and finance team in particular comfortable with those things was like a huge lesson for us. Yeah. Um, but there, because of the velocity of deals, like, you know, talk about like reliance on data. I mean, we spent most of our time A-B testing. Yeah, and actually um, Karen Peacock, um, the company's chief operating officer, I spent more time actually dissecting data and understanding how to controls and like when you would run an A-B test, when would you have a winner, um, <laughs> you know, what is statistically significant, you know, trying to make things mutually exclusive so we could test properly. Right. That was something I really developed as a leader there and just didn't have a lot of exposure to previously. Yeah. And it made me better from actually like investigating things and taking a more data-driven versus anecdotal or sales intuition approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can definitely relate to the this shift from kind of like the self-service model to a sales model. I was uh, at Eventbrite where, uh, I don't know if I can say percentages, not that I probably remember them accurately anyway, but a large portion was self-service. You just go to eventbrite.com, you know, right? you, you probably all done it or bought a ticket. And then they're like, we're gonna build out this large accounts team. And that's where I came in. And it's a very different atmosphere from when day one is we need this B2B team to work and we're starting getting revenue to, be kind of a nice to have, right? Or like you're the future, but like how do we, you know, justify millions of its in salary, before, you know, knowing it's going to take months to get there? So I can't uh, can't overstate enough like what that that is like. That dynamic is very different. Yeah, and then you know, um, even the relationship of like, how do you expand your relationship with those customers who purchase self serve? So like, yes. we would have, you know, we would have groups uh, at like very large um, blue chip companies that had like a specific team that used intercom in a very unique, specific way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we wanted to grow that relationship, but how do you actually artfully go about working with them to grow it? Whereas, you know, trying to connect the dots from, you know, one specific like data team that's using this to test things to going enterprise wide. How do yeah. you do that? How do you make that transition? Like that was a really unique challenge we had there as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's not even just changing how they use your software. It's how they engage with your company, right? They used to do it all on their own. And now you're like, hey, don't just buy more. Uh, work with me to do it, right? <laughs> it's, it's a shift for sure. And the focus. The last big thing we had to figure out that I think lots of companies struggle with is like, where do you focus your attention and energy? Um, and there was, um, for a company like Intercom, there's, you know, it's a big, powerful product. There's so many different use cases and ways mm-hmm. to use it. And so what are the ones that you focus on further investing in? from a product development perspective yep, and why. Yep. And you can't, can't do, do everything. Mm-hmm. So where are you really going to focus? Like we would have so many conversations around like, where do we focus? There's so many different things we could do down market, up market in different industries and for different use cases, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which ones are we going to focus on investing in and, and when and why? Right. Yeah. I think those, um, we're talking about like the shifts that happen within a company, like going from self-service to more outbound and, um, when I was at MongoDB, for example, we were similarly uh, very uh, individual focused. We were an open source product. So we had a really strong uh, community of developers and yeah. they would c- pick up our product, use it for free, build all these apps. It was great. But then we had this challenge of, hey, how are we going to now start getting buy-in from IT, from enterprises mm-hmm. and make this an enterprise-grade product? And so the whole, it was a shift for the whole company, right? It was like the sales motion, the marketing, the partnerships that I was working on. And I think those are really interesting learning experiences to be at companies during those times because you see that before and after. There are a lot of struggles in between. But if you have like the right team in place and you have that curiosity to learn, it really comes together. Yeah. 
So, you know, going through those part, you know, those changes with companies, I think are, are really great experiences for folks. To add on to that, like from a career development perspective, I think sometimes people in sales get a little too focused on like, what's my responsibility and role. And when they feel like they're tapping out or they want more, they leave to search for another company where their role and responsibility or title and comp package will change. Yeah. And they do that at the cost sometimes of just being part of an amazing company yeah. and being part of that learning as a company of like, how do we develop and grow? Mm-hmm. And I think for me, what I've learned um, from the companies who are interested in trying to like recruit me, I want to spend time with me. It's, it's not necessarily always what you were directly responsible for. It's what were you surrounded by? Yeah. What was the environment like that you were a part of? And what were the key learnings for the company? That exposure, I think, is actually insanely valuable. And I try to coach people on that when I'm mentoring them all the time. I'm like, stop thinking about your title. Don't go to like a tier two or tier three company. Yep. Slow yeah. down. Like think about all the things you're learning about how a company builds as being part of this. Mm-hmm. Right. You're part of that story. Absolutely. You're part of creating that company. So and true. that's very marketable. You've been a part of a handful of very successful hyper growth companies, including right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that hiring is exceptionally important, finding the right talent. What are some of the types of skills, traits, mindsets that you look for when you're hiring sales reps and you can extend to sales leaders too, if you'd like. Yeah. Um, I would say it's the same for both. I, I don't um, look too much at past experience at all. Um, I think more about, um, and I test for um, how inquisitive they are and, and how fast I think they can be coached and learn and grow. How comfortable being uncomfortable are they? Mm-hmm. Mindset mm-hmm. to me, I think, is so much more important than where you worked, who you sold to, what were your average deal sizes. Like, you'll learn those things. I think um, I see amazing salespeople join um, high growth stage companies and fail because it's just it's too much for them. They're too used to having a lot of resource mm-hmm. and process and playbook and like something to follow and navigate. And they'll right. do it very well and be very disciplined about it. Right. But they're they're insanely uncomfortable being in a company where it's like, we don't know. We don't have a map. We need to write the map. Yeah, you need to help <laughs> us write it. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually think like mindset is is more important to me than anything. And like a self-awareness for what we're um, doing now and what we could be doing in the future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I th- I'd like we test for that. That's most of what we test for when we're interviewing. How do you do that? Ooh, um, I, have, I have lots of questions I want to reveal because hopefully there's people listening to this that we might want to interview in the future. Um, <laughs> but I would say um, most of it is is talking through problems people face and then how did they overcome them. And most of it is like looking for those stories around obstacles that they faced personally and professionally, mm-hmm. how it impacted them, how they quantify it, and then how did they go about actually trying to solve that problem for themselves. Yeah. Like understanding their decision-making process, how self-aware they are, how resourceful they can be, how creative they are in thinking through those things, um, and how much do we believe like this is someone who's going to persevere, yeah. and when things get really hard, they're not going to go look for something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I asked something similar um, I also won't share just cause <laughs> <laughs> no, but I asked like, you know, tell me what's one of your biggest professional failures and, and why, and how did you bounce back? Um, I look at what people pick as the biggest failure. I want to hear something real, not, uh, you know, I, I missed one deadline one time or missed quarter yeah, by 5%. You know when it's like, come on. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the thing I look for too is, is how they tell that story. 
right? Like, are they kind of just like, are they passionate about it? And they got, kind of get fired up thinking about that failure and how they overcame it? Or does it feel kind of like this, uh, you know, kind of boring linear story of, you know, this happened and that and now I'm here and everything's good, right? So uh, I can definitely relate to that in terms of looking for, you know, that grit and, and the passion for it. Literally one of our cultural values is grit and perseverance. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. We're moving into 2020, start of the year. What is the most important skill that you think uh, sales leaders should focus on this year? Time management. Everywhere I go, and, and I'm guilty of this as much as the next person, there's so many, only so many hours in the day. Are you focusing on the most needle-moving things for your team? Mm -hmm. um, and consistently, people just react. They yeah. come into work, and they're catching up on email, and and they just kind of react to the day. Pull up at the end of the day or the end of the week, and it's like, did you actually accomplish what you needed to? Did you actually move things forward? And I don't think people are comfortable saying no or or kind of re-delegating things on their teams. Time management isn't, it's just, with how many tools we have, and they're all meant to give us time back, mm -hmm. yeah. and somehow they don't. We need to create space to just think. Yeah. Um, I oftentimes will encourage leaders on my team to be like, you should work from home half a day a week or yeah. one day a week. Like you need time to just think and get away from your day to day. Yeah. Do you block out time on your calendar? Absolutely. Like thinking time? Yes. Yes. Um, and it gets, it gets moved around the calendar, but <laughs> you, you, you need, th you need time just to think yeah. and just yeah. process. Um, and we all try to go way too fast and would do way too many things. And fewer things done better, actually, I think is like a pretty good mantra. Yep. Um, but yeah, time management. And please describe sales in one word. To me, active listening, but you could just uh, shorten it down to just listening. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, th this was honestly uh, a fantastic interview. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your journey. Yeah, happy to help. Terrific to Thanks for you. having me. Absolutely. Thanks. Every week we bring you a micro action, something to do or think about to help level up your game. David shared that time management is a top priority for highly successful and busy sales leaders. So here are three tips that'll make you more effective with your time. Tip number one, plan your day and block your calendar. This is a simple but super effective way to ensure that the most urgent and important items on your to-do list get the attention they need. Before you head out for the day, map out tomorrow's must-dos. Be sure to keep urgency and importance in mind. Not everything is both. I start with urgency because, let's be real, if it's on the list, it's already important. And if you make sure that the most urgent things get handled first, you won't be scrambling at the end of your day or hopefully working too late into the night. Tip number two, co-own your one-on-one -on -one meeting agendas with your counterpart. Here's how. Create a shared one-on-one -on -one Google Doc that you both contribute to throughout the week as topics arise. I've done this in my career with my sales leaders, and it keeps us both accountable and saves time. Plus, if the week gets away from you and you don't get a chance to add to it, which we all know happens from time to time, in 30 seconds or less, you can glance at what they added to the doc and prep yourself to address their points. Now you're having a meaningful conversation in a one-on-one -on -one without needing to invest a ton of time in the meeting prep. Tip number three, leave 10 to 20% of your schedule open for unplanned conversations or things that will pop up unexpectedly. Yeah, I just told you to block your calendar and plan for the day, but... If you don't give yourself a buffer to move between meetings and chat with people who need your input or simply pause for five minutes to refocus, you'll feel rushed and you'll probably won't end up getting everything done that you had hoped. Time is money. So hopefully these three tips will help you get more of both. 
Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.